Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I once saw this fascinating graph that I've never gotten out of my head. It showed that happiness levels are really high when you're young and then steadily dip through your 20s, 30s, and 40s and bottom out in the early 50s, at which point they do a sudden and sharp rise through your 60s, 70s, and 80s, way above where you were in your youth. Obviously, this is an aggregate, but it's fascinating nonetheless. And, and my question is, why is this? Why do we get happier even as our bodies are falling apart? And here's another question. Why, from the standpoint of evolution, do humans stick around way past the point of reproductive age? The answer to both of these questions, per my guest today, is wisdom. Dr. Dilip Jeste is a distinguished professor of psychology at UCSD and the author of Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. Dr. Jeste believes that wisdom can actually be measured and studied. And on an even more radical and profoundly hopeful note, he believes it can be practiced and developed as a skill, which has regular listeners will know is the core notion of this show. In this conversation, we talk about how exactly Dr. Jeste defines wisdom, what people of all ages can do to become wiser now instead of waiting to grow old to reap the rewards, and the relationship between wisdom and loneliness, which is particularly relevant, of course, during a pandemic. Just a few content warnings the conversation does include a few references to sensitive topics, including suicide, substance abuse, and depression. Also, a technical note, you may hear some shifting and rustling at certain points in the recording. That's just the nature of remote recording in a pandemic. Before we dive in with Dr. Jeste, one quick item of business. Some exciting news. Earlier this year, we ran a survey of our listeners. Thousands of you answered a whole series of questions about your experiences with this show, and uh, we in turn listened to you. Uh, it turns out one of the things you really don't like is the ads on this show. We'll be right in the middle of talking about the pernicious impacts of mass media or the importance of self-compassion or how to achieve a blissful state of attention and focus, and then a jarring voice elbows its way in and tries to convince you to watch a boxing match or try a new diet or by a car. So we've heard you on this, and we're going to try something new. This show, the 10% Happier Podcast, is now available ad-free inside our companion meditation app, which is also, as you probably know, called 10% Happier. So you can listen to all of our episodes without ads inside the app when you subscribe. Relatable wisdom sans distractions. So to get started, download the 10% Happier app in the Apple App Store, open the app, and tap on the podcast tab at the bottom of the screen. And good news, as promised, this is now available on both iOS and Android. Okay, that said, let's dive into my conversation now with Dr. Dilip Jeste. Dilip Jeste, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show, Dan. I've been looking forward to this because um, there's <laughs> this is such an interesting subject to me. I, I want to get, I want to sort of, I think, start at what I believe is the beginning, which is how you started to muse on this subject of aging in the beginning. I understand that one of your early questions was why why do humans, you know, live so far past our physical prime? I was born and raised in India. And like most Eastern cultures, people in India believe that older people are wiser. There is also a scripture in Hindu religion called the Gita. It's like the Indian Bible, if you will. And that's really a compendium on practical wisdom. What people should do in their everyday life to be wise. So those two things I grew up with, I didn't think much about them until decades later but they affected my thinking for a very long time. I was very interested in brain and mind. 
So I decided to go into psychiatry, which was a weird choice for many people, question my sanity, why I'm doing psychiatry. But I thought that was fascinating. And because I was interested in research, I decided to move to the States because the mecca of research is NIH. And there I became a geriatric psychiatrist. I moved to San Diego from there. So some of my friends said, why are you doing geriatric psychiatry? It must be so depressing because most mental illnesses are incurable and aging is all gloom and doom. And yet what I found was that as people got older, with or without mental illnesses, they seem to get happier, 10% happier, 20% happier. Uh, Also their emotional regulation improved, compassion improved. And then it suddenly struck me that what I grew up with in India was that older people are wiser. So is that really a scientific fact? So that's what I decided to study. And how, how does that relate? I mean, this is a, it's a, that's a great story, a great trajectory in your sort of intellectual and professional development. But l- let me just loop back to this question because I've heard you pose it before, which is from an evolutionary standpoint, why do we humans live past the point where we can, you know, hunt and carry things and build things? Why, why, does, why did natural selection decide to keep us around well past our physical prime? That was exactly the question, actually, I had for s- several decades, that human longevity does not make sense from the Darwinian perspective of survival of the fittest. Because Darwin's hypothesis is that animals, vertebrates, out in the jungle, they die soon after they lose their fertility. Because for a species to survive, we must replace the dead ones with the babies. So we are useful to the species only so long as we can produce babies, right? And humans, we have an age of menopause in women around 45, 50, similar age for andropause in men are in 45-50. That age has not changed over centuries. The age of menopause and andropause has been around 45-50 since times immemorial. So that has not changed, and yet the average lifespan keeps on increasing. It was 45 in the US in 1900. Today it is 81. In a few decades, it will be 90. That means if somebody lives to age 90, they would have spent half of their lifespan without producing babies. In other words, not being useful to the species survival. And so that was my question. How does nature allow that and even facilitate that? Did you arrive at an answer? Uh, Yeah. So there are actually several answers to that. The most important answer, which came as a total shock to me, was something called grandmother hypothesis of wisdom. The grandmother hypothesis states that when grandmother helps her adult daughter raise children, this adult daughter lives longer, is happier, and is more fertile than her mom was. She produces more children than the mom did. So, Although the grandma cannot produce children anymore, she helps the next generation live longer and be more fertile. So the grandma is contributing to the species survival by helping the younger generations not only live longer, but be more fertile. And this has been shown in dolphins, whales, some species of birds, and in humans. And these are papers published in the top journals, such as science and nature. So this is not some feel-good TV science. It is real science that shows that the nature is helping older people to help the younger generation survive longer. So it is compensating for the loss of fertility by allowing them to help younger generations live longer and be more fertile. There's one explanation. There's also other things. Well, I was just going to, you, you, you kind of read my mind. That's one explanation. 
and it, it's it's incredibly interesting. But and I may be missing something here. It doesn't necessarily touch on wisdom, which is where you began in this conversation. And so I'm wondering, is there an evolutionary need for wisdom in our species? I'm really glad you're asking that question. Studies have shown that when older people are involved in raising younger generations, those generations actually learn a lot from their grandparents or grandparents' substitutes. And what the older people are doing is transmission of cultural wisdom to the younger generation. And that's not often included in the typical evolutionary theories because typical evolutionary theories, again, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but from what I know, it typically involves mainly things related to survival and genetic contributions. But I do think that these cultural contributions are as important as those contributions for species survival. It's also worth noting that we humans may not only have a very long lifespan after we lose fertility, but we start having the ability to produce babies before our brains are fully developed. A human can have a baby as soon as he or she reaches puberty. So age 12, 13, 14, we can produce babies. The brain is continuing to develop through adolescence and early 20s. There is something called synaptic pruning that occurs during adolescence. So it is really weird that we can produce babies and have them for almost a decade before our brain is fully developed. That makes no sense at all. That's where, again, the grandparents are absolutely critical. And so this grandmother hypothesis of wisdom, I think goes beyond just talking about this increase in fertility, but also talking about transmission of cultural values, which is really the cultural wisdom that is important to transmit. And how are you defining wisdom? We define wisdom as a personality trait. Personality trait like resilience, optimism, neuroticism, extroversion, introversion. So it refers to a specific set of behaviors that we all have, right? But wisdom is different from others in that it is a complex trait. It has several different components. And what are those components? The most important is pro-social behaviors, things that we do for other people rather than selfishly for ourselves. And this includes empathy, compassion, altruism. Empathy means understanding and sharing somebody's emotions or thought. Compassion goes beyond that. It involves helping another person. And altruism means helping others without expecting anything in return. So for example, if I donate to a charity and I ask for a tax break, that's not exactly altruism. But there's nothing wrong with that too. But altruism is ultimate compassion where you do it without expecting anything in return. So this empathy, compassion, altruism form the pro-social behavior, which are the single most important component of wisdom. Then comes emotional regulation, control over emotions. So think about a teenager. His emotions fluctuate from minute to minute, right? And then think about a wiser, older person. It's pretty calm, controlled, can take things in stride, move on. So there is emotional regulation. The third is self-reflection. This ability to look inwards, try to understand our own behavior. Typically, when something goes wrong, my tendency would be to blame somebody else or the environment. But... Self-reflection means I ask myself, did I do something wrong? How can I do something better next time? So there is self-reflection. Then comes something which is sadly lacking in today's world, which is accepting diversity of perspectives. So I may have strong values about something, and I believe in those, but I can understand why somebody else may have different set of values. I don't have to agree with that person. But 
I can respect another person having different set of values. The next one, though, is kind of balancing that is decisiveness. Because I can't be sitting on the fence all the time and saying this may be right, that may be right. I have to be decisive when needed. And finally, the last component is spirituality. Spirituality is different from religiosity, as you know, Dan, very well. It really not organized religion. An atheist can be spiritual. Spirituality to us means constant connectedness with something or someone that we don't see or hear or perceive. Whatever you call that entity, whether you call that soul, consciousness, spirit, or God, doesn't matter. But that constant connectedness will prevent you from feeling lonely because you're always with something or someone. So these are the six main components of wisdom. So just a question about spirituality as you're defining it as a, a constant connection to, I believe you said something like you, something you can't see. I'm just wondering, you know, I wouldn't, personally, I don't believe in anything I can't prove, but I do endeavor to engender in myself a connection to the well-being of all beings, right? That sounds a little grandiose, but it's a, it's a venerable Buddhist notion. Would that count as spirituality? Because, I mean, I can see that there are other beings around me, so it's not a spiritual and traditional sense of sort of believing in something extra, you know, supernatural. That's a great point. I think that does count as spirituality. Again, the definitions of spirituality vary. There are different ways of looking at it. But I think the basic concept is being connected with something larger than ourselves. I think, and whether that means well-being of the community as a whole, that's great too. So I don't see any problem in uh, thinking about that as also example of spirituality. I appreciate the clarification. I also really, it's fascinating to hear about these six components of wisdom as you and your colleagues understand it. How do we humans naturally develop wisdom as we age? Do you have a sense of why this process kicks in? So as I said, wisdom is a personality trait. And most personality traits are about 50% inherited. That means about 50% genetically determined. It also means that 50% of a trait is determined by environment and behavior. Again, when I said 50%, it is roughly, it may be anywhere from 33% to 60%, whatever it is. But there's no question that part of that is genetically determined. You see families, you know, in which most people tend to be more controlled, uh, more optimistic, resilient, helpful, and so on, and other families in which that is not the case. Also, you see differences within a family. You see some people who tend to be more self-reflective, more compassionate than others. So you can see both environment and genes. So it is both nature and nurture that affect it. And Although wisdom increases with aging, it is not one-to-one -one relationship. There are some older people who are very unwise, and there are some younger people who are very wise. So it is not a given that wisdom will increase with aging. Experience definitely comes with aging. But the question is, what do we do with the experience, right? The same experience can affect different people differently. For example, we know PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which occurs after some trauma, individual trauma or some disaster like tsunami. But there are people who instead of PTSD, they have post-traumatic growth. They actually get better, they learn something. And instead of avoiding that, they actually try to help others and try to prevent those kinds of trauma. So, Experience is important, but again, what you do with experience, and that's where wisdom comes into play. Wiser people will use experience to further enhance their wisdom, whereas other people won't. So you said earlier that the, I believe there's data to suggest that generally speaking, on average, we get happier as we age, but that may not necessarily mean that we're getting wiser. We might get happier for a bunch of reasons. So maybe it's because we're getting wiser or maybe it's something else. 
that's a very good point. But a number of cross-sectional studies have shown, and these are studies across the culture, that older people do better in certain ability areas. Again, many studies have shown that older people have greater emotional regulation. They are more self-reflection. They are more empathic and compassionate. They are more self-reflective. And we are just completing a longitudinal study of wisdom. And we see evidence that some ability areas do improve with aging. Again, we are talking as a group, not necessarily an individual, but by and large, these things seem to get better. And one of the characteristics of wisdom is actually it is associated with greater well-being, greater happiness, and greater contribution to others' well-being. And that's what makes wisdom really a unique trait because this doesn't apply to almost any other trait. I mean, even if we look at, say, things like resilience and optimism, they don't necessarily make you happy, let alone necessarily helping other people. But wisdom, by definition, is associated with well-being, happiness, and greater contribution to others' well-being. So it seems like one of your primary thesis statements would be that wisdom is not just religious or spiritual, it is actually biological. That is exactly right. Um, So when I started studying wisdom, how do you start studying wisdom? Actually, the first thing you have to do is define it, right? How do you define it? So you start with the literature review. As a researcher, that's the first thing I do. When I start research on new entity, I do literature review. When did the literature on wisdom start? Actually, it started in the antiquities, the religions. So our very first paper on wisdom was actually a study of wisdom in the Gita. It was a qualitative, quantitative, mixed-method study with a medical anthropologist as a consultant. So we went through the Gita, its English translation, and tried to find out in what context the word was wisdom used. And we came up with several components Right? So we said, okay, so that's the definition of wisdom according to Gita, which was written thousands of years ago in a, an entirely different part of the world. But what about the modern Western definition? So we looked at the modern literature. The modern literature, by the way, started in the 1970s. That's where empirical research on wisdom started. And it has been growing since then. So we looked at the modern Western definitions and the common elements. And I can tell you, I was amazed that the definition in the scripture and the modern Western definition were nearly identical. These components that I described, empathy, compassion, altruism, self-reflection, emotional regulation, decisiveness, spirituality, exactly same components in both. There were some differences. For example, in the Gita, it argues against materialism, whereas modern Western definitions don't necessarily divorce from um, materialism. But those are minor differences compared to the major difference. And that was really a surprise, but also fascinating thought that the concept of wisdom has not changed from times immemorial to the present. What does it mean? To me, it meant that it must be biologically based. Because if it is biologically based, it won't change with time or with culture. Again, obviously there are differences with culture and time, but basic construct has not changed. So it is based in the brain, obviously, right? Where in the brain? Our second paper on wisdom was actually titled Neurobiology of Wisdom. Because we wanted to find out where in the brain the wisdom was located. So I did a Google search, wisdom and neurobiology. How many articles did I find? Zero. Because most of the neurobiologists don't use the word wisdom. So I had to look at the components of wisdom and their neurobiology. For example, neurobiology of empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, or their opposite, like neurobiology of antisocial personality. So we looked at these different components and their neurobiology, and only two areas of the brain showed in all of them. One is prefrontal cortex, which is the newest part of the brain in evolution. 
and second is striatum, which is the oldest part of the brain in evolution. So that was fascinating that the oldest and the newest parts of the brain are involved in wisdom. And remember, when the brain is, you know, it has so many different areas, there's so many different functions. Why did these two regions only show up in all of these components, right? So that was a very interesting finding. Again, I said, we wrote in that paper on neurobiology of wisdom that this is just the beginning of our research, right? I mean, it will be unwise of us to say that this is the neurobiology of wisdom. We don't know that. I mean, this is science that's developing and 20 years from now, our theory would be different. But still, the basic concept stays same, that wisdom is largely a biologically based construct, although it could be affected by environment and behavior. Can you say more about these two areas of the brain? What What's your thesis of, about why wisdom seems to be seems to implicate these two areas? So the prefrontal cortex, as I said, is the newest part of the brain. That is what makes us human compared to other primates. And so what is it that makes us human? It is what is called executive functioning. We can control our emotions. And that's what, you know, if you think about how we raise our kids, that's what happens. The kids, anytime the kid doesn't get something, he throws a temper tantrum. And we teach him not to do that. Don't throw temper tantrum. If you don't get anything, that's all right. Just be calm. It's all right. You'll get it later on. So we are teaching the kid to inhibit the emotions, right? Similarly, the kid is, uh, has toys and doesn't want to share them with anybody else. And we said, that's not good. I mean, you have to share with your sibling, with your neighbors, with the other kid in the class. So we are teaching empathy and compassion. So we are teaching something that goes against his self-interest, right? I mean, my goal would be to keep everything for myself because that's how I will survive. But I need to share it with others because human species requires that. These are the functions of the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex teaches us to control our emotions, to not be too selfish, to share them with others to be self-reflective, to accept diversity of perspectives. Again, you know, we all like to be with people who are like us, people who are different. As a child that grows up, the first time he or she sees somebody who is very different, the child gets upset and doesn't know what to do. And so in a way, the biases that we carry, some of us carry later on in life, are because of that. But Wisdom comes with teaching to overcome those biases, right? So accepting uncertainty, accepting diversity of perspectives is a function of prefrontal cortex. And this is not what you see in other and most lower animals, right? Emotional regulation, empathy, compassion, you do see to some extent, but not really to the extent that we humans have. So those are the functions of the prefrontal cortex. Okay, that's the newest part of the brain. The other part I mentioned is the oldest part of the brain, striatum, especially amygdala. And that's the center of emotions. All animals have emotions. So it's not surprising it is there. And we have emotions, but prefrontal cortex helps us control them. But that doesn't mean we should not have emotions. A wise person does have emotions, does exhibit emotions, but in a controlled fashion. So it's really balance between the newest and the oldest part, prefrontal cortex and amygdala, that leads to these various traits. That makes a lot of sense. And we see this too in the, uh, as I understand it, we see this too in the research around the impact of meditation on the brain, that it can cause salutary beneficial changes in, in the stress zone, the amygdala, and also in the emotional regulation zone and the attention regulation zone of the prefrontal cortex. So that's pretty interesting. You know, just thinking about the list of the six traits that you lump under the under the uh, aegis of wisdom, it's interesting to me that you have both the ability to incorporate other points of view and decisiveness. So, because you could see easily how 
having a sort of postmodern view where you're taking other people's positions would lead to uh, paralysis. But in, in fact, a wise person is not paralyzed by this diversity of opinion. That's exactly right. I think it's really the balance that matters. And in a way, the whole wisdom is based on balance for everything. I mean, for example, decisiveness and accepting uncertainty and diversity of perspectives is actually one of the best examples of that balance. And especially in a leader, our leader doesn't necessarily mean the political leader, but even leader of a family, leader of business. One has to look after others' interests. And so where you have to accept the diversity of perspectives, but you have to be decisive. If you are, again, sitting on the fence all the time, you are a very ineffective, inefficient leader. But balance actually applies to other things also. For example, when I talk about compassion and empathy, it is not just compassion toward other people. You also have to be compassionate toward yourself, right? And they have to be balanced. If I'm extremely compassionate toward other people, I keep everything away, I will not survive. I have to have some selfishness, right? And so it's really the balance between the two. And that applies to almost every single component of wisdom that we can think about. You know, for example, say self-reflection. It is important to think about why I'm doing what I'm doing. But if I'm constantly preoccupied with my own thoughts, that's not helpful. Right? That's sometimes what happens in obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, that you're constantly preoccupied. So that doesn't help. Right? Emotional regulation. Clearly, we need to control our emotion, but that doesn't mean we should be emotionless. Of course not. When something good happens, we should be happy. Something sad happens, we should be sad. Then only we can empathize with others, right? But we don't want to go to such an extreme that it affects our functioning as well as other functioning. So the point here is that, again, that these need to be balanced and that's what wisdom is. It's so interesting that you identify balance as a key part of wisdom. It's interesting to me because I tend to look at the world increasingly through the lens of Buddhism, a tradition that was developed in in your homeland. And the one of the principal pronouncements of the Buddha was that we need to find the middle way. And it's, it's all about balance and, and, the, and the development of wisdom. Well, that, that's exactly right. Many of these concepts, and in a way, they, they are so related to Buddhism that it is not surprising coming from India, because I think it is the philosophies of Hinduism, Buddhism are very similar. And uh, I really find it inspiring, actually, Buddhism, the meditation you mentioned about that. Numerous studies have shown that meditation improves not just function, but even structure of the brain. Studies have shown that people, after meditation for a number of times, the white matter integrity in the brain improves. Sometimes the volume of certain parts of the brain increases. Even some biomarkers of inflammation, immune function, cell life increase. So it is not just, again, as I said, it is not just a feel-good science. It's real science, hardcore science. And things like meditation have impact on our brain and body, not just in functioning, but in structure. And that's really amazing to think about that. It is. It is. It's part of what allowed me to get over my prejudices against meditation and to finally to, to adopt it as a practice. But you've, you see, you've kind of brought us nicely to... What can we do, especially those of us who are not yet in old age, to develop the wisdom of old age when we're not in old age? Um, and I, I would imagine meditation would make it on your list, but w what else makes it on your list? The first thing to do, though, in terms of if I want to increase my wisdom, by the way, the first thing I want to say is that wisdom can be increased in anybody and everybody. All that we need is motivation to do that and discipline to do that. If we did that, all of us can be wiser, but we have to do that. There is scientific literature on randomized control trials to improve empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, and spirituality. So this is, again, pretty hardcore science, world on randomized control trials. And by the way, some of the meditation trials that you described, they come under the 
province of spirituality. Uh, and these studies clearly show that, yes, these things can be improved. We can improve emotional regulation, empathy, compassion, and spirituality in some people, not in everybody. One thing we have done is actually we developed a scale for measuring wisdom, and it measures all the six components, the San Diego wisdom scale. And one thing I suggest to people is the first thing is take that test, not because it is perfect or anything like that, but it will help you understand what are your strengths and what are your limitations. Obviously, none of us is perfect. So we may have total similar score on the wisdom scale, but we may differ in the components. Um, for example, my wife is much more compassionate than I am, and that's usually true for women. But I tend to be a bit more decisive than she is. So although our scores may be similar, total scores, we have difference in that. And so that helps me and us decide where we want to focus on. What am I lacking in? And so in our book, we talk about sort of the strategies for each component of wisdom. So the first part is actually self-reflection, which is understanding our strengths and limitations. So let's say self-reflection is something in which I need help. How do I do that? How do I increase my self-reflection? I have to set aside some time, several times a week. Say I may say that Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, I'm going to think about what I did for half an hour. But during that half hour, I don't do anything else except just sit by myself, think about what happened in the last two, three days that either upset me or made me happy. If you do that regularly, we'll find a pattern of things that either stress us out or that make us happy. So there should be self-discipline to have the self-reflection regularly, whatever time, three times a week for next several months. Okay, then comes empathy and compassion. So what do we do for empathy, compassion in everyday life if you want to increase it? So there are two components, self-compassion and compassion toward others, right? So compassion toward others, how do we increase it? One is gratitude diary or gratitude journal. Before going to bed, write a couple of things that make you feel grateful. And eventually you can write a couple of things that made you happy because you did something for somebody else. And why do you do it every day? Because then it becomes your second nature. When you start getting up in the morning, you say, oh, what am I going to write tonight? So let me do something along that line, right? So that's one, gratitude diary or gratitude journal. Self-compassion, self-compassion is also important. So think about the time you got stressed out and you realize that you had made a mistake. What do you do? One thing is, think about what would you do if your friend came to you and told you the same thing? The friend came to you and said, you know, that I'd gone to the party. I think I did horribly, and then I'm feeling so stressed out and regretful. You tell the friend that it's okay. It, you know, this happens. You are not the only one. Probably it's happened to a number of other people who went to the party. And just think about, you know, what you could do better next time. So you convince your friend that he should not feel too bad. Just move on. It's the same thing you should do to yourself. That's the point. Do that to yourself so you can get over it. There's something called sense of common humanity. Everybody makes mistakes. So it isn't, you don't have to feel guilty the rest of your life because you did something wrong. That's okay. And their mindfulness, again, becomes very important. We accept the fact that you felt distressed and that's normal. But then how do you move on? Because you have moved on in the past, you'll move on again. So those are examples of sort of improving self-reflection, empathy, compassion, and um, self-compassion. Much more of my conversation with Dilip Jeste right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people 
with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I have a million questions. I want to go back to self-reflection, which I'm, I'm really intrigued by. You talked about taking a half hour, three times a week to sit by yourself and to think about what's happened in your life recently and how did you respond to it? And I wonder, can, in your view, can this be done effectively with somebody else? In other words, I find that some of my most, for me, some of the most satisfying self-reflection I do is talking to my wife, talking to a shrink, talking to uh, a close friend. Does that count in your view? Absolutely, it does. Now, thank you for mentioning that. That's actually an important point uh, that comes not only with self-reflection, but also with gratitude diary. Same thing. Some people find it hard to write something, and it is easier for them to share their thoughts with somebody. So absolutely. I mean, that's as good as doing it with yourself. So definitely. I mean, of course, you need to choose a person you whom you trust uh, and respect. Uh, and with whom you feel very comfortable in sharing your thoughts. So this is a person, like you said, with your wife, which is great, where it is almost like talking to yourself in the sense you're not trying to make something up. You're not worried about your image, what the other person would think about that. And so when you are that comfortable with somebody, absolutely, it's fine to do that. You don't have to do it to yourself. What do you recommend in terms of developing emotional regulation? Because I know that's another of the six components of wisdom. So emotional regulation. One example I commonly give, because it is common in California, is road rage. Right? I'm going to work. Uh, I'm a little late. I'm rushing. Uh, and somebody cuts in front of me. I'm so mad that I start honking, cursing, etc., etc. And that doesn't help me. Actually, the risk is that I may hit that car and then there'll be investigation and all of those things. Why do I? So how do I control my rage at that time? There are different ways of doing that. One way is rationalization. Think about why that person cut in front of me. Not because he was a jerk, but because maybe there's a child in the backseat of that car and suddenly the child had a seizure. What would I have done if I were in that situation? I would have cut in front of others because my job was to take the child to the emergency room as soon as possible. Whether that is true or not doesn't matter, but you sort of reimagine the motivation for that person. So that is one way. Second is distraction. Increase the volume of music on your radio so you don't think about that. And third is think about the past times this happened that was late and actually I reached there and my boss was late too, so really it didn't affect me. So what does it matter? So these are the ways for the road rage. And for other things, again, we can do similarly that if we can reimagine other people's motivation, because often the emotions get out of hand because of our thinking that somebody else actually had some bad motivation. That's what makes us angry often. And so if we can control that by thinking that actually, no, the person may be actually meaning to do well, but he or she did it for different reason, that calms us down considerably. So these would be the ways of controlling emotions. 
what you're talking about gets me thinking about what I've what I believe is called the fundamental attribution error or just attribution error, which is a, a bias wired into humans, which is and I'll try to state this accurately and please uh, correct me where I run afoul of the truth. But the, this bias that we have, which is that if we like somebody, if they're in our tribe, we attribute their motives. Like if they do something horrible, we're, we're more likely to say, well, there must be extenuating circumstances. And if if uh, somebody we don't like who's not in our tribe does something good, we're more likely to say, well, they must be trying to, you know, virtue signal or they must have an agenda. This seems like a, a bias that if we could work on would help us with emotional regulation. That, that, that's exactly right. I think that that's something because, I mean, if you think about so, so division and polarization, that often comes with attribution of motives to the other side that we think that they are doing it intentionally to hurt us or our perspective or our friends, etc. If we change that and said that, no, that may not be the case. We don't have to agree with their rationale, but there may be some other rationale that they think is right, but the goal is not to hurt us. I think that itself will bring down the emotional extremes considerably. Another skill that you recommend we develop en route to wisdom is openness to new experiences. Can you say a few words about how we can become more open to new experiences? I mean, in a way, openness to new experiences is also related to working or interacting with people who are different from us, because that's a new experience. We go to a different place we have never been, we meet with people we have never met, do something that is different. Because that way we are challenging ourselves. And by challenging ourselves, we are learning something new. And challenging oneself and learning something new is an integral part for what is called neuroplasticity of the brain. That brain can continue to develop in later life if, and that's a very important if, if we are active physically, cognitively, and socially. And the way to stay active is not just by doing some chores, but learning something new, trying, venturing out into something. Again, we have to do that carefully. For example, you know, I have no musical skill, so if I started learning some music, I mean, it will be utter failure, so that won't work. But I'm good at research, so I can actually switch my area of research from one to another. So that's why. So that is how I am opening myself to new experiences where I have the right balance again, that where I know that some things will go wrong, will not work, some things will work. And then overall, though, I will benefit from that experience. Do you feel yourself getting wiser? Do you follow your own advice? You know, actually, <laughs> I must say yes, partly because I have become conscious of those things, which I was not. And interestingly, so our book, This Wiser, came out, actually, it came out on the election day, November 3 of <laughs> last year. <laughs> uh, but since then, so I've been talking about this podcast and other things. I find that I'm becoming more self-conscious and it's also feeling more guilty that if I'm preaching something, I need to practice it myself, right? So if I'm not practicing, that's not very helpful. So I, I do think that it has had impact on me and uh, I have become less unwise. <laughs> less unwise. I, I have a feeling you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit. Let me, let me phrase it another way that won't, won't force you to brag. Do you find yourself getting happier with age? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is no question about that. And actually, we have, we published a study of some 1,500 people in the community from age 21 to 100. And we found that, as expected, their physical health declines with age. The mental health and happiness go exactly in the opposite direction. So, you know, the 20s and 30s are fountain of youth. They're the fountain of depression, anxiety, and stress. The good news is that as we get older, things start getting better. In the sense, the stress doesn't go down. Actually, stress, if anything, increases in older age, right? But we know how to handle stress better, and we become happier. So there is no question about that. That's why actually I allowed the title of your podcast, 10% Happier. But that's what we should be aiming for, not 100% happier. That's not possible. But 10% happier at a time will be great. 
And, and this is also important, there's a biological basis why we would become happier in older age. You know what is that? Amygdala, as I said, is the center of emotion, right? Brain imaging studies show that amygdala in an older person becomes less responsive to stressful or negative stimuli compared to young person. So in a young person, both positive and negative stimuli, they will stimulate the amygdala, activate the amygdala. In older person, the positive stimuli will activate it, but not the negative ones. And it is almost like young minds are like Velcro to negative emotion. Old minds are like Teflon, that we all have negative experiences. But as we get older, we say, okay, you know, that happened, but you know, it happened in the past and I got over it and I won't even remember it a month from now. You get over it. Whereas for a young person, it had become so stressful that they can never forgive them and they can never forgive others for whatever happened. I'm exaggerating a bit in the sense this is generalization, so it doesn't apply to every single person. But by and large, I do think this is true. It reminds me of that uh, great quote from, I think it's Mark Twain, who said, youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> yes, that is, that is so true. Youth is wasted <laughs> on the young. <laughs> they can do so much more. And, you know, it is like that uh, book we said that I was amazed how smart my, how sm most smarter my parents became from when I was 18 to when I was 22. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another Mark Twain chestnut. I know in the book, and I'd love to learn more about this or get you to say more about this. One of the one of the ideas you're trying to nudge us toward is scaling up from individual wisdom to societal wisdom. How do you reckon that will happen? Do you reckon it will happen at all? I do think that there is such a thing as societal wisdom. And it depends on what we prioritize. In the very old days, what was prioritized was military might. You know, Alexander the Great was great because he controlled large swaths of the globe. You know, the sun never set on British Empire, so that became important. Then the society started saying that that's not true, actually, in the sense military might, you know, because that is bad. Why do you invade another country? So economics becomes, became important. So then gross national product gross domestic product, they became the signs of strong society. In recent decades, that is shifting. Now people are talking about happiness index for the society, right? I mean, there are happiness scales that use, people use for the defining society. And US <laughs> falls somewhere in the middle. We are the most affluent society, but we are only in the middle of the happiness index. I think the future should be wisdom index where we apply similar principles, self-reflection, empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, accepting diversity of perspectives. But we apply them not to individuals, but to societies. How do we behave with other parts of the globe? Do we help them? Because if we help them, they will help us. So I do think there is such a thing as societal wisdom. And what worries me is in the last 20 years, I think the societal wisdom has gone down almost everywhere, I would say. And there are actually statistics showing that loneliness has doubled in prevalence. Suicides, the number of suicides in the US has increased 33% from 1999 through 2017, 18, 19, whatever the last year was. These are CDC data. Deaths from opioid use have increased six folds. There were something like 8,000 deaths in 1919, and today there are 50,000. So before COVID came in, our society actually has been going through a very rough period. And this Gallup survey that are done every year, they show increased level of stress, anxiety, depression. So I really don't think we are living in a good climate today from behavioral perspective. We need to change that. And so I said that in some ways, 
we have this loneliness, social isolation pandemic that has been going on for two decades. And probably the vaccine for that is wisdom, where if we all became more empathic, compassionate, caring about each other, more self-reflective, more emotionally regulated, we will be happier. So it's not just a question of longevity. It's really a question of happiness. Happiness is ultimately what matters most. It's not how long we live. It doesn't even matter how many illnesses we have. I mean, our studies, both in general population as well as in people with schizophrenia, cancer, AIDS, show that happiness does not correlate with your physical health or disability. It correlates with your mental well-being. And so mental well-being and happiness are really, they should be the goal of everything we do. How much optimism do you have that we can prompt some sort of serious society-level move toward the inoculation of wisdom? I think that that... I like to be optimistic. <laughs> and uh, right now it looks pretty pessimistic, but at the same time, I do think that societies can change. I mean, we have changed things like smoking, for example. I mean, three, four decades ago, it looked impossible that smoking would go down, and yet it has gone down considerably, right? Uh, similar to attitudes towards women, attitudes toward racial ethnic minorities, they're beginning to change. We are not there, but at least we are thinking about them. Likewise, I think the things need to change start at kindergarten level in our education system. Actually, I blame our education system at all levels, starting from kindergarten to graduate schools, to medical school, engineering school. The only thing we teach and we reward are the hard skills. The physician, the surgeon has to be the best surgeon in the technique. We don't value things like empathy and compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation. We don't teach them, let alone reward them. And we have to do that because younger people especially are suffering. As I said, the rates of suicide have gone up, especially in teenagers and people in their 20s in the last couple of decades. Older people actually are doing better psychosocially. Younger people are the ones who are suffering most. And I think we should take, the society needs to take responsibility for that, that we need to teach them how to be happy and they can be happy if we teach them these different components of wisdom. Amen to all of that. This has been a delight to talk to you. Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't ask? Is there something you wanted to talk about that I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about? One of the most interesting and important findings in our research, actually in the last few years, has been that loneliness and wisdom go in opposite directions. And that's really very interesting finding, if not because it's our finding, but because loneliness is really at the root cause of suicides, opioid use, depression, stress, and loneliness has increased. And partly the society, actually, because we constantly we are on the move. Families are becoming smaller. There is no social connectedness left anymore because everything changes, right? And... Whereas in the old days, you know, we lived in the same village, we were born, went there. And so we had a really very good, not just family, but the larger community. That's no longer the case now. With globalization and rapid rise in technology, we have lost the social mores. So there is nothing, actually no social support to rely on. So loneliness has become so common and so pervasive. And it is loneliness that leads to all of these other side effects. We found in seven, eight different studies, including thousands of people from U.S. as well as other countries across a lifespan, that people who score high on wisdom score low on loneliness and vice versa. And we found there were biological differences using EEG and microbiome. So I do believe that there is some connection, and numerous studies have shown that loneliness is associated with bad health, bad physical health, mental health, greater mortality, but wisdom is associated with greater happiness, better mental health, physical health, and so on. But if this is true, I really think it is true because we have, I have never had a finding like that so consistent, including biology. 
we may actually have a solution. Yeah, I mean, if you, one of the, I mean, I really like the idea of baking this into the educational system, but I also think that, and again, I'm going to steal from the Buddha, um, you know, the, the, the solution that you're suggesting that I am also suggesting to people co-ops the pleasure centers of of their brains. In other words, what doing all of these things will make you happier. We all want to be happier. And, and, and I'm not just talking about humans now. Every sentient being wants to be happier. So it is a primordial desire. And so it's not like we're, it's not quite like a shot in the arm of a of a serum you may or may not trust. It's it's really a uh, a bunch of common sense, sort of advanced common sense steps we can take to be happier in our own lives. Well, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that, that's why I really uh, admire your work because that, that is really what is needed for people to understand these concepts of meditation, mindfulness, and practicing those things regularly to make us 10% happier. That's how we begin. Because if I am happy, actually my emotions improve and then I'm more likely to be helpful to others, right? And then I get more help from others. So the social support increases. And again, modern research, actually in the last 30, 20 years, actually even less than that, social determinants of health are very important for health and longevity. And social determinants include things like loneliness, social isolation on one hand, social engagement and social support on the other. These have even greater impact on health and longevity than smoking, physical activity, and nutrition. Amazing, amazing. And these things don't cost anything. (laughs) And just one quick practical point I want to make, because there may be people listening to this saying, well, okay, I get it, I should have more social support, but I don't know that many people and I, I'm isolated and where I live, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a pretty good answer, a pretty good retort to this that I first heard from um, our now Surgeon General, but I interviewed him uh, back before he was Surgeon General. I guess actually he was Surgeon General and then he wasn't for a while and now he is again. But you can go back and listen to this interview and it's it was on the subject of loneliness. His name is Vivek Murthy, and his response is, go volunteer. Because volunteering, and I believe this, Dilip, I believe this is on your list of things to do that we can all do to, to develop our own wisdom. Volunteering puts you in touch with other people, and it puts you in touch with the most noble aspects of yourself. That is so true, absolutely. I think, and, and there's actually a scientific basis to prove that. There have been literally randomized control trials that have shown that volunteering, especially intergenerational activities where older people go and help kids in public elementary schools. Studies show that not only the mental and physical health improves, but their biology improves. The biomarkers of stress go down. So exactly right. So this is volunteering, and again, especially intergenerational activities in the sense, helping people who are different from you in age, sex, race, ethnicity, education, whatever, is just a win-win situation for everybody. Dilip Jeste, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again to Dr. Jeste. The show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. As always, a hearty salute to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohen. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. 
and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.